the dessert, the dessert. You cannot see the hand. So what? What's the point to walk almost if you don't have water, if you don't have food, without say, knowing where you go? But we decided to walk a bit, and after one or two hours, we saw a kind of outpost from far away, and we walked to that to that little outpost, but without knowing if it was a Syrian or a Jordanian. When Laurent van der Stockt and Jean-Philippe Rémy found themselves alone in the Syrian-Jordanian desert, it wasn't just their own survival that was at stake. In their backpacks, they were carrying evidence of war crimes. Samples of hair, blood, urine and clothes stained with a toxic substance, as well as photographs and testimony from survivors and eyewitnesses. With this material, they hoped to prove to the world that the regime of Bashar al-Assad had defied the red line and was now using chemical weapons against its own people. Laurent and Jean-Philippe had risked their lives to secure this evidence. Six weeks of dodging snipers, terrorists and heavy bombardment from the Syrian Air Force. They'd moved undercover, oftentimes in the dark of night, between frontline fighting, safe houses, and makeshift medical centers, while documenting some of the most harrowing scenes of their career. Laurent himself had survived exposure to toxic nerve agents. They were determined to get out of Syria alive and deliver these samples to professional laboratories who would be able to confirm what chemical agents exactly had been used. Abandoned by their smugglers in the middle of the desert, Laurent had dispatched one last satellite call to colleagues back in Paris. But there was no rescue helicopter coming their way. So when they saw a lonely outpost on the horizon, Laurent and Jean-Philippe had little choice but to walk right towards it and hope for the best. If they were lucky, they were headed towards safety in Jordan. But if they weren't, they were walking right into the hands of the Syrian authorities. The two of them had come so far. Now, they were either meters away from completing their mission or from losing their samples and, most likely, their lives. My name is Tobias Schneider. And this is Nowhere to Hide, a podcast from the Global Public Policy Institute in Berlin. Of the foreign journalists who had reported from the Syrian war, Laurent and Jean-Philippe's work had special significance. When they approached that desert outpost, their backpacks carried more than just laptops and hard drives stuffed with notes, photographs and video footage. They carried the first material evidence of the use of chemical weapons in the Syrian war. They also carried with them the desperate hope of those Syrians they had met that the world would finally acknowledge the horror that their government was inflicting on them every day. It was a profound responsibility. As they got closer to the watchtower, they made out the flag fluttering above it. 
striped black, white, and green, with a distinctive red chevron. The flag of the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. At first, the relief was immense. They had made it. They were out of Syria, out of the war, and out of reach of the Assad regime. But then Jordanian border guards appeared, and they had questions. When we arrived, the three guys in the outpost was like, where are you coming from? These guys was amazed by these two ghosts coming by foot from, from the middle of the desert with strange language. <laughs> they, I remember they opened the banks and they were asking us, what is it? <laughs> And the guy wanted to, to open my, uh, my computer and to see the pictures. So I looked at the guy and I said, you have two choices. All the pictures I have in this computer, the films, everything. If you wait one week, it's going to be published for free. <laughs> the other option is you want to know now, but you're going to be in trouble. Laurent was bluffing to protect the evidence. Still, the guards promptly arrested them. But this was really only a minor inconvenience, considering all the dangers they'd faced in the last days and weeks. Finally, after two hours, a Jordanian commander showed up. They told him their story, showed what they'd carried, and warned him not to handle the samples. Thankfully, their colleagues at Le Monde had already alerted the French embassy in Jordan. So by the time Laurent and Jean-Philippe arrived at the capital of Amman, French government representatives were there to assist them and to make sure that the two journalists would get home safely. Laurent and Jean-Philippe knew that they'd never be able to test the samples themselves. There are very few laboratories around the world that can test for chemical warfare agents. After all, these are incredibly dangerous and tightly controlled substances that only governments have access to. So despite the strong skepticism of government institutions shared by most journalists, Laurent and Jean-Philippe understood that they would need to work with an official French laboratory. But it was no light decision to hand over this crucial evidence. As a journalist, you cannot really make your own results, your own research. We had to deal with the French authorities. The, the last thing we can do is asking them to tell us the truth. The testing process would take time. And while Laurent and Jean-Philippe waited for the results, yet more reports of chemical weapons attacks came in from across Syria, Damascus, Aleppo, Idlib and Homs. The growing signs that he's using chemical weapons is frankly appalling. Obviously horrific as it is when mortars are being fired on uh, civilians and uh, people are being indiscriminately killed. Uh, to use potential weapons of mass destruction on civilian populations uh, crosses uh, another line with respect to uh, international norms and international law. For those paying close attention, it was becoming increasingly clear that these attacks on multiple front lines were not the work of some rogue commander. They were now part of the regime's way of war. But that reality had yet to sink in among international donors and even among local first responders, who were barely able to cope with the impact of conventional warfare. They certainly were not able to receive and treat victims of chemical agents. To change that, 
would be the mission of Hussam Nahas. Now I'm nervous. <laughs> when I met him in Washington, D.C., Hussam had just completed his master's in public health at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, one of the best programs in the world. At first, Hussam seems a little shy and awkward. But as soon as we start speaking about his work in Syria, he suddenly comes to life, and you get a real sense of his intelligence and of his dedication to his community. I always wanted to be a doctor. That was the dream of my life. So in 2006, I started my medical education in Aleppo University. Uh, originally, I'm from Damascus, but I moved to Aleppo to, to do my medical education. Uh, in 2011, I was on my fifth year, and uh, the Syrian uprising started. I tried to focus a little bit more on my education to graduate. In Syria, medicine students study for six years before qualifying. When the revolution broke out, Hussam was just one year away from fulfilling his lifelong dream of becoming a doctor. But as the government crackdown intensified, he could no longer shut himself away with his medical books. He felt compelled to help. The way that the government uh, responded to, to the uprising and the, like, the amount of violence they were applying on people, I just felt, no, I need to intervene. Like, I need to step in and do my work as, as a physician, although I was not officially a certified physician. So I tried to volunteer to offer healthcare. Early on in the uprising, Syrians knew that if they were wounded by security forces during a protest, they absolutely did not want to end up in a public hospital or clinic. These places were packed with security agents. Some hospital staff were themselves collaborators and informers for the Assad regime. Showing up at the emergency room with a wound from a rubber bullet or a baton was seen as evidence that you were taking part in the protests. If the wrong person saw your injuries, you could be sent not to a doctor, but to one of the state security branches. So to protect protesters, revolutionary medical students and independent doctors had started setting up makeshift clinics across the country. They tried to bring first aid kits to embattled towns and neighborhoods and stitched wounds in underground medical points. But treating protesters outside of government-run hospitals was considered a crime. Medical volunteers were accused of aiding terrorists. Many were arrested, disappeared, and even killed. Uh, unfortunately, three of the team members were arrested later. A few weeks after, they were sent back to their families, but killed. So they were arrested, tortured, really, really bad. We heard back from their families that they were found dead and their bodies were even burned. It was a clear message to every medical student in Syria but Hussam and his colleagues were determined to continue their work. For me as a team member, I felt scared, but at the same time, my thinking was like, more people are in need for these services we are offering right now. I have colleagues who were more junior than me uh, in the medical school who sacrificed their lives for this cause. And there is no way for me to just withdraw from, from this work. So I continued working with, with the team for like additional few months until I personally got arrested, again, for the same reason. Hussam was imprisoned for 16 days. He was interrogated and then released with a warning. By the standards of the Assad regime, 
He had gotten off lightly, but it was not an ordeal he would ever want to repeat. My, my experience there really made me make that clear decision that I would prefer to work in a non-governmental controlled areas, killed in a hospital that is targeted by the government, but not go into detention again. It was really a horrible experience. Dying is way better than getting under detentions in Syria. By the end of 2012, many parts of eastern Aleppo were in the hands of the opposition and subject to violent bombing and shelling. Makeshift clinics provided the only health care in these areas, and qualified volunteers were urgently needed. So Hussam decided to leave his home and head east. The opposition's field hospitals were badly under-equipped and understaffed, and struggling to cope with the floods of victims from Assad's bombing campaign. Hussam, a mere medical student, found himself conducting surgeries usually assigned to veteran doctors. The medical points themselves were also regularly targeted by the Syrian Air Force. Is that the hospital? Yes. Fuck, they just hit the hospital. The organization Physicians for Human Rights collected evidence on at least 601 attacks against Syrian health facilities. At least 942 medical personnel were also killed over the course of the war. In the spring of 2013, the same time that Laurent and Jean-Philippe were working on the outskirts of Damascus, Hussam was also getting first reports of chemical weapons attacks in Aleppo. We started hearing different reports or like news about the use of unconventional weapons or people like explaining some really strange signs and symptoms from a medical perspective related to something more than conventional weapons or like barrel bombs or direct shooting. He heard theories about pesticides being dumped on densely populated neighborhoods. But there was nobody he could interview and no victims to examine. And then, one early morning in April, a toxic substance struck the Aleppo suburb of Khan It was like early in the morning and people started suffering from respiratory distress, some weird signs and symptoms. They reported like shortness of breath, tearing and excessive secretions, and all of them were referred to Aleppo University Hospital. We, we did not have the opportunity to interact with these patients, but because I was studying in Aleppo University, I managed to get to some of my friends who were still working in, in the university, and they told me how messy the situation was and how unprepared the physicians were, that even some of them were admitted to the intensive care unit because of the secondary contamination. They were not prepared to deal with such an event. No, like, protective equipments, no clear protocol. And I said to myself, well, this is real right now and we need to, to be prepared for such an attack. And it's, it was not the first time and it will, it will not be definitely the, the last one. Hussam began to gather all the information he could find on chemical weapons. The medical team met and we tried to create a protocol for a response. The first reaction to this, and I, I still remember this, it was a one-page response plan 
which was not sufficient. Like it raised a lot of questions and it was really confusing more than helping. And this is when I said, well, I think this is a new front line that I can cover. This is when I got my name, which was back then Hazem al-Halabi, and then I got my name, which is the chemical Hazem. Because I was so involved in preparing these, uh, to, to these chemical threats and trying to prepare Aleppo city. Hazem al-Halabi means Hazem from Aleppo. Like many revolutionaries, Hossam had chosen a pseudonym for his work in the opposition. The idea was that if any one of the group was arrested or tortured, they would not be able to reveal the real identities of the others. So from now on, he would be known as Chemical Hazem, and the race to prepare his colleagues and his community for a chemical strike would become his contribution to the revolutionary struggle. Chemical Hazem and his team scoured the internet, reading and translating anything they could find on chemical weapons exposure and treatment. But these materials could be pretty niche and difficult to access. And even the documents Hossam could find were of limited use in Aleppo. Most of them were protocols designed for national governments to protect their own people within a well-resourced medical infrastructure. In Syria, it was a different story. And I started immediately after this attack on April, studying different protocols from Canada, from uh, UK, US. I even got a French protocol and I don't read or speak French. So like I had to translate words one by one. All of these were really valuable information, but were not fully applicable in our situation. Like when you read in the French protocol, like the army and the police should control the crowd. We don't have such a thing. You need to utilize your ventilation. Oh, we only have one ICU bed in the whole hospital. So like we cannot utilize these kind of resources. For Sam realized he needed to compile his own protocol, one that was applicable to the unique and exceptionally challenging circumstances in Syria. So I continued working and studying all these protocols, asking people, reaching out to experts, until I came to an end product, which was like the Syrian protocol for preparedness and response to, to chemical threats. Uh, I think it was like a few hundred pages that like show the steps one by one, starting from establishing the decontamination point and what kind of properties it should have, where it should be located compared to the, like, the direction of the wind and all these technical details, and then going through the, the medical protocol and how you approach a patient with an unexplained signs and symptoms that can be related to exposure to chemical agents and how you differentiate between different agents so you can give proper treatment. These manuals would be essential. Most family doctors or everyday nurses working in Aleppo had never considered the treatment of chemical warfare victims. They needed dependable guidance on how to quickly identify what chemical agents had been used and how to treat a victim. There are different kinds of chemical weapons in the Syrian arsenal, including nerve agents, which affect the central nervous system, blister agents, which cause horrifying chemical burns, and choking agents, which suffocate their victims. Each one requires a different set of treatments and precautions. Some substances are so dangerous that merely handling the victims without appropriate protective gear risks exposing medical staff to secondary contamination and potentially collapsing the entire clinic in a critical situation. 
So preparedness for chemical attacks involved more than just the stocking of antidotes. It meant learning meticulous step-by-step -step processes that would need to be implemented in extraordinary situations. Hussam also wanted doctors and nurses to know how to safely gather evidence of chemical weapons cases. It was really a very long protocol that even includes like, documenting these cases and like medical records for these cases and some more criminal or uh, forensic uh, documentation for these events. By June 2013, Hussam had almost finished his protocol. He wanted to be sure he had all the vital information covered. He ran the document past colleagues and advisors, and he even staged a real-life simulation of a chemical attack to see if he'd missed anything and to test how the community would respond. I organized with, with a team of healthcare providers and volunteers, and we started a simulation without informing the local community or even informing the hospital or the patients in the hospitals. Uh, so basically, I got some volunteers, I had the cameraman and an ambulance to a mosque. And after doing the, uh, the prayer, one of the people who were praying, who, who was an actor, collapsed and started this, this aggressive convulsions. Another one tried to help him to the ambulance and fall down as well, just to mimic this secondary contamination and how challenging and dangerous can be. And I, I was tracking how people were reacting, and I really liked the way people thought that this is, well, this is dangerous, we are not going to help, which is really what we want. Unless people are really protected, we don't want them to interfere. Otherwise, this will increase the number of, of, of victims. And then eventually we took those patients to, to the hospital and we announced on the Tokiwoki that there are a suspected use of chemical agents and the hospital should be prepared. A cameraman was trying to see how the, the staff at, in, at the hospital will, will respond, how they will isolate and close the hospital, how people and patients inside the hospital will, will deal with this, with this event. It, it was really interesting to see how everyone is, is responding, to understand where the gaps can be and where this response might fail. I feel that was not ethical uh, right now as, as, as a, a public health professional, but back then it was really needed. While Hossam worked to fill the last gaps in his protocol, back in France, Laurent and Jean-Philippe finally received the results of their toxic samples. The experts of the laboratory uh, finally came out with the results. They confirmed it was a serene. The French government immediately took a firm line. Minister of Foreign Affairs Laurent Fabius went on national TV backing the results. France says tests on samples from two sites prove that sarin gas has been used in the conflict in Syria. Et la conclusion du laboratoire est claire, il y a du gaz sarin. We found out years later that the French government had also recovered a fully intact chemical grenade from Sarakib in the north of the country. And they were able to match the chemical composition of the agent found in that grenade with the samples recovered by Laurent. It also matched what French and American intelligence services knew about the production methods of the Assad stockpile. Fabius said that the French government had, quote, the entire chain. He concluded 
that the presence of sarin in the sample smuggled out by Laurent and Jean-Philippe proves beyond a doubt that the victims have been exposed to this gas, which he says was 500 times more toxic than cyanide. In response, a spokesperson for the Syrian opposition called for immediate measures against the Assad regime. There is no doubt that the Syrian regime has used chemical weapons against the Syrian people on many occasions and in the three largest cities, Aleppo, Damascus and Homs, where more than 15 million people live. The regime will use chemical weapons again because it has exhausted all other means. The world must stop this regime because it poses an enormous threat. Days later, the White House also confirmed the Assad regime's crimes. Now to the breaking news overseas this evening. In a short time before we came on the air tonight, the White House confirming what U.S. authorities had long suspected, that Syria's president has used chemical weapons on his own people. Barack Obama's famous red line has been crossed. The White House is now convinced that the Syrian regime is using chemical weapons against its own people. Our intelligence community assesses that the Assad regime has used chemical weapons, including the nerve agent sarin, on a small scale against the opposition multiple times in the last year. As a consequence, Barack Obama announced that he would increase support to the Syrian opposition, including military aid. So for the first time, lethal weapons now made their way through Jordan and Turkey to the Syrian rebels. Military bases were set up in neighboring countries to train opposition fighters. Some more hawkish voices, like Senator John McCain from Arizona, called for much more decisive action to stop the Assad regime. Pressure is growing on President Obama to act. So I applaud the president's decision, and I appreciate it. But the president of the United States had better understand that just supplying weapons is not going to change the equation on the ground of the balance of power. But despite all this rhetoric, when Hussam actually tried to fundraise to distribute his protocol and to secure medical supplies in case of further chemical attacks, his request still fell on deaf ears. When I presented this presentation, this simulation, I called for action and I really tried to convince people to invest more in the response. Because like I knew in Aleppo, which is supposed to be prepared, we only had less than 10 uh, protective gears and we don't have any medications, especially to treat a, a, an organophosphate. No atropine, no pralidoxine, nothing that can be used for, for the management of, of these cases. And also nothing enough to protect the medical team. So the only option in a real life scenario would be to shut down the hospital and just try to run away. So I really tried to, to advocate and ask people to invest in this response. And people said, oh no, it's, it's a red line from Obama administration. And there's no way Assad would have enough courage to cross this red line. And no one was interested in investing in, in this response. It was crushing, but Hussam was well aware that aid workers and NGOs had already enough on their hands responding to conventional weapons. Airstrikes, gunfire, and collapsing buildings were killing thousands every week. Meanwhile, chemical attacks had only killed a handful of civilians up to this point. Perhaps it was time to shift focus back to treating conventional injuries. Perhaps his protocol wasn't actually a priority. I just tried to 
hold the response, like hold the preparedness together in Aleppo at least, while continuing to re revise the, the protocol and see whether there are any gaps and areas for improvement. But then, in the early hours of the 21st of August 2014, Hussam was woken by his hospital director. I still recall I went out to my room at the hospital uh, on August after a very long night shift and I was asleep when the head of the, the hospital knocked on the door and woke me up. It was, it was really a frightening moment. I said, a very massive chemical attack in Ghouta just happened. You need to communicate with them and see how you can help them. Where to Hide is presented by me, Tobias Schneider, and written and produced by Karam Shamali, Eliza Apperly, and Injil Bakri. Sound design and composition by Benjamin Nash. Podcast illustrations by Molly Krabappel. Cover image design by Sonia Sukrobova. Special thanks to our communications team, Katarina Nachba, Amanda Pridmore, and Ilya Sperling. The Nowhere to Hide podcast and associated research is supported by the Canadian Department of Foreign Affairs. If you want to learn more about the use of chemical weapons in Syria, go check out our website at chemicalweapons.gppi.net. See you next time. <laughs>